Welcome to Beggar's Bread, Season 3, a podcast where we invite Christians and truth seekers to engage with thoughtful sources in an age of disinformation. Our name is inspired from the quote by D.T. Niles, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Each week, we recommend a source for you, either a sermon, podcast, or video. This week, we bring you Those Among Us. And with that, it's Luke here in Wisconsin, and I'm here with our co-host, Nick, in North Carolina. How's it going, Nick? It is going well. Well, that's Surviving good. and thriving. How about you? You know, I'm I'm doing doing pretty good, and I'm uh I don't know surviving and thriving. I I have been watching Survivor, so I've been enjoying that. I don't know an old episode, like. Or an old season, like season three. So that's that's been interesting. Are you not caught up on the newest surviving methods? Uh, you know, I actually Survivor as a show has changed quite a bit. Um, and I and I know this is what everyone was expecting us to talk about. They they came on this going, I want to know Luke's views of Survivor, and the good thing is, you came to the right place. He's um, very passionate. Very. <laughs> I actually applied to Survivor, so I mean. I, I didn't hear back, which they basically say on their website. They're like, yeah, don't expect to hear back unless you're like, we're going forward. So I'm like, oh, okay. No, all right. But Well, that's anyway. unfortunate because it was a very inspiring video. It was <laughs> inspiring. Well, I'm glad Maybe we'll share that on the podcast. No, we will not. That that video has already been deleted, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure uh, I got well, a new phone since then. That is our listener's loss, I think. It is. Uh, anyway... So this week <laughs> on Beggar's Bread, I am actually going to interview Nick. Um, we are recommending a source. It's called What's It Like with Stacy and Emily, episode number 23, What's It Like to Be B. Vang. And B. Vang is actually a pastor of mine and when I was in middle school and high school and a close friend now. That's actually where the, the title of the podcast episode, the uh, those among us because there are many Hmong people in the area that I'm in in Appleton, Wisconsin and B is Hmong and he shares his story and I'm just briefly going to read our co-listeners thoughts because they are fantastic and this is Allison from Illinois. B Vangs is the kind of story that makes you sit back and wonder how incredible narratives you're walking by every day and the people that you pass in the grocery store Emily and Stacy's episodes activated my empathy and my curiosity, which I believe is exactly what their podcast sets out to do. So good job, friends. In listening, I was most struck by two things. One, how human people can endure so much trauma and yet so often maintain a clear desire for a healthy life and run after it. And two, how much we need Jesus and his church to recognize and accept that health. Worth the listen. Amen to that. Thank you, Allison. Uh, for your co-listening and of course thank you B. I don't know if he's listening to this or not but thank you for being a mentor of mine and good friend of mine so excited to share your story and speaking of how does this connect you know because you're like Luke you just you said you're interviewing Nick this doesn't sound like an interview of Nick all right well we're doing that now because Nick has worked with refugees in the past and the whole story once you listen to the podcast with B. And Emily and Stacy, you'll you'll notice. Oh, B is also a refugee, or was a refugee. I'm not sure how that status exactly works. But let's start the interview. Nick, oh, are you yeah. prepared to be interviewed? 
Oh, maybe I said yeah too quickly. <laughs> All right. Well, here we I go. I guess I will be. We'll Let me out. ask. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna change up the question right now. This is actually just information. Um, what what was the name of the organization that you worked with? Uh, that you were, um, working with refugees, Nick. Oh yeah, I was working with one of the nine uh, resettlement agencies in the United States. It was called Lutheran Services Carolinas. Although, as to whether or not there's still nine organizations now following all the various budget cuts, I'm not actually sure, to be honest. But I know Lutheran Services is still around. It's one of the bigger ones, uh, particularly in like the Midwest, but also uh, here as well. Because it's part of a Lutheran Services Carolina is part of like um, an organization. Like a, it's like an affiliate office of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services or LIRS. I see. And, and there's uh, a lot of Lutherans in the Midwest. <laughs> that that's true. We, there are a lot of Germans, and there are a lot of Lutherans coming from from over yonder. Um, let me ask: Do Lutheran services do they only serve Lutherans? That'd be surprising, given that there's not a lot of Lutheran refugees. Okay. Actually, <laughs> I was just none that I know of. Anyways, I was just I don't know. I was trying to. Throw some softball questions. Get get Nick warmed up. Um, okay, <laughs> like, let me ask Nick. Lutherans? <laughs> no. Let's start from. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if this is the beginning, but one of the beginnings and the many steps of a refugee's journey. When a refugee gets to the U.S., what possessions, if any, what do what do they come with? What what do they have with them? Hmm. What well, very much depends on what their situation was like in the country that they had fled to from their home country, because. Across the world, there's differences between like, because you'll hear people talking about, you know, refugees in camps. And so there's actually a distinction between even like some of those terms, right? So you have people that will flee um, into like urban centers. And so they're still refugees with refugee status, but they're not necessarily in like a literal refugee camp. And there are really big ones. Like I think the biggest one is in Kenya, actually. But then there's other people that have fled and they're actually in detention facilities in like Indonesia and Malaysia um, or even on like Easter Island and Nauru and stuff like that that have been kind of leased out to the Australian government where they're stuck in basically, um, how would you describe, (laughs) indeterminate detention. Like there's no end in sight for them. Um, Unless they actually get approved for either asylum or to be resettled elsewhere, depending on what status they have. So it kind of depends on, yeah, like where they're fleeing to and whether or not, for example, I know in my experience, a lot of people um, that had special immigrant visa holders. So those are people that are part of or served alongside of the U.S. government in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they oftentimes, from what I saw, tended to have more like possessions that they took with them because they weren't they didn't have to flee from Afghanistan in Iraq to a secondary country in order to apply for that status. They applied to become special immigrant visa holders in Iraq and Afghanistan because it's part of a program with the U.S. government specifically because of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I see. And so. They tend to, and I think my assumption would be that they tend to have more possessions because they haven't literally, like, completely fled the country, you know, with, bare, like, whatever's on their back. Like, a lot of the people that 
um, we've worked with from like, say, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, who like, for example, one family, they actually fled during the first Congo war in like 96 and they didn't have anything. They fled straight down to South Africa. And then they stayed there for about 20 years as refugees before they got resettled into the United States. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's a big... And then, of course, there's, like, SIV families that I've worked with where they come in with, like, 8 to 10, like, person-sized bags for a family of, like, 6. And there's other people that have, like, you know, 3 bags among a family of 11. So there's, like, a bit of diversity as far as um, possessions are concerned, really. Yeah, it really depends on what what situation they're coming from. Let me ask, I have a follow-up question just on this first one. When you talk about, like, in Kenya, there's one of the largest groups. Just to give an idea of scope, because a lot of times, um, you know, we'll talk about specifically the United States taking in how many refugees, like, and I know it's often somewhere, this is going to be ridiculously broad generalization, but somewhere anywhere from, like, 10,000 to 40, 50,000, is when you talk about a large refugee camp in a different country is it in that similar like oh 10,000 20,000 30,000 or is it more like hundreds of thousands or millions of people like um what what is the scope of people I was actually looking it up because I have no idea (laughs) that's one of the few statistics I don't know as far as um international but I mean by comparison it's pretty profound I mean looking at one of the countries there's just in one city in Kenya, there's 212,000. And we resettled, I don't know, I think it was like 15,000 in 2020. And then like maybe a little bit more in 2019. So by comparison, and if you even if you look at it from the perspective of the just Trump administration, um, total number of people that they resettled over four years was like about the same amount as one year in previous administrations from years gone by, with the exception of like 9-11, in which case a lot of, you know, flights were shut down and stuff like that due to um, terrorist concerns. And so... I see. Okay. So let me ask... I'm sorry. I'm zooming in and then out and then back in. So maybe I I should just stick with these questions that were carefully thought of earlier. (laughs) I mean, um, you can zoom in out all you want. We're here. I'm here all night. Indeed. Uh, okay, let's ask, Nick. Um, when somebody comes over, who provides a place for them? Uh, is it Lutheran Services? Is it the government? Is it a church? Is it Who is it? How do they get food and jobs and places to live? Yeah, so actually it's the... The resettlement agency has cooperative agreements or grants with the... I want to say the Department of State, and then also various other smaller programs they have with the state governments um, to resettle refugees. And so, in particular, there's a cooperative grant called um, Reception and Placement, RMP. And so, like, that's the main one that every resettlement agency has in which they have funding to do kind of the basic, like, 90-day services, which would include, like, establishing housing for them, getting them prepped for um, public assistance applications and social security and applying for those social security numbers and stuff like that. Um, But also making sure that they have furniture and certain required um, housing appliances within those homes too. 
um, because it is, like I said, a grant with the government. So there are certain like requirements and policies that the agency actually has to abide by, um, which is why some people will ask us, oh, like, why don't we have a washer and dryer? And it's actually not required. Like there's certain things that just aren't like as necessary um, based on the these agreements. And so sometimes it tends to be like certain things might be a little bit outdated. Like, for example, you're technically not required to provide them with phones, but all agencies do because we have to be able to communicate with the clients that we're serving. Um, but it's just stuff like that that's not necessarily been updated in uh, subsequent cooperative agreements that, you know, could use additional support on. But a lot of it is coming from the local community as well, right? And so you have a bunch of volunteers, at least within the triangle, and I'm sure this looks similar across the board with other refugee agencies that have limited resources, right? Um, that they utilize donations from those volunteers to provide the furniture and access the food pantry um, at local nonprofits to provide them with food for a week before they actually are able to receive their public assistance SNAP benefits and stuff like that. So there's definitely quite a bit of cooperation between the local community, um, government grants through the agency, and then also the local state governments and their public assistance, such as like Medicaid and SNAP, like I mentioned before, um, which actually all refugees are eligible for, um, for as long as, you know, until they get a job essentially, and then starts to kind of dwindle down because they'll be making money and that's going to take a significant cut as far as their like benefits are concerned with SNAP. But they will actually have Medicaid for, I want to say, eight months for adults without kids and then a year for adults with kids. And then children will have it until they're 18. I see. And in your experience, in all of those adjustments, obviously a lot of, um, a lot of policy that you have to navigate as an agency... Out of all, all those adjustments for the refugees as they're going through this this process, are there any things that stand out to you as the one of the most difficult things? Um, language. Language is always a really challenging one for the majority of people that we work with. Um, obviously, there are exceptions in people. I mean, the majority of people that we do work with are multilingual or they at least are like bi or trilingual, depending on what sort of um, tribal dialects they also are in possession of. And so obviously in America, there's a there's this heavy emphasis on English as being first and foremost, like above everything else. And obviously Spanish is coming into the play as well now, uh, which is encouraging because with English being that kind of primal factor in allowing for people to gain that economic uplift. Um, it, provo- it poses challenges for especially older refugees who have already learned five languages and they really don't want to learn any more at that point. Um, and so kind of keeps them in that cyclic poverty level of being paid a low-wage job because they are like, you know, in their 60s and they just can't or don't want to learn English at that point. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I never thought about the way you just framed it. Having already learned five languages, I'm like, oh, I think. Yeah. Well, it even brings to mind when you were talking about there's a country that they're fleeing, and then there's often a host, like kind of an in a liminal space, uh, an intermediary country before they are resettled somewhere. Um, 
but and they usually pick up the language there as well especially if they're kids too like we had families from afghanistan like there's a there's millions of refugees in turkey from syria and afghanistan and other places and so oftentimes the kids will actually be able to speak turkish really well and then also arabic and um, farsi or whatever depending on what country they're coming from um so it's always interesting to see like kids from different countries being able to kind of convalesce with Turkish, even though they're from completely different countries, that their national language is not Turkish. Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. And and kind of going off of that, thinking about when you mentioned older refugees learning new languages, is that are there other differences and challenges that you see between adults and children, like, coming over as refugees? I think so, because when you have children that are really immersed in the school system because um as soon as they arrive like they have to be enrolled in school obviously and so there's oftentimes programs for that in which they're going to be helping um the refugee parents connect with the teachers and then also making sure that they understand how to um get them set up with the bus system like public bus system for their kids making sure that they have the um, affordable lunches for kids as well because anybody that's on SNAP is eligible for that. So we want to make sure that they understand how to do that. Um, and so I think with children, they're more likely to be immersed in in the English environment and therefore are more likely to actually be able to integrate better because they're so fluid with regards to like their developmental learning, right? And so they're able to kind of grasp the language a lot quicker because they're automatically immersed in it all the time, or at least like whatever, five days a week. I don't know. I was homeschooled. We didn't really have that. And so with their parents, however, it's often the case, or at least depending on what program they're in, um, they often have to get a job quickly. Like you, the goal is to get that self-sufficiency right away, um, usually within the first like 30 days to three months, give or take. Um and so pushing for that job, pushing for those employment opportunities and connecting them to those resources, um, all the while taking English classes, oftentimes the adults will actually like kind of drop out or like they won't have as much engagement with those English classes once they get in- involved in their employment opportunity and actually get hired. That, and in that case and in those situations, they're oftentimes working in environments that are in non-English settings. So like they're in like chicken plants and um, painting crews and stuff like that. And so these jobs that hire um, non-English native speakers, and oftentimes that's going to perpetuate that environment in which they're not going to necessarily be like learning English as quickly. Um, and that obviously varies depending on what employment they have, but oftentimes that seems to be the case. I see. Well, before I ask the next question, because I do have more questions, I'm actually going to cut you off because oh, no. listeners, as you're sitting there going, why are you cutting him off? He's, he's on fire. You can you can hear all these experiences. They're so good. Because for our bonus episode for our Patreon, uh, Nick and I are going to continue this interview. So you, if you are a Patreon supporter, we'll be right back. If you're not a Patreon supporter, if you want to support us, you can hear the rest of the questions. I'll tell you one of the questions um, before we go right now. It's what long-term goals do most refugees have? Returning to their country of origin, staying in America, just surviving. Um, 
and what is a hopeful experience you've had so if you're sitting there going i want to hear the hopeful experience uh come right back with us on patreon but for everyone who doesn't have a patreon come back next week for a different 316 we'll see you next week